Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we begin, and by whose power we have new life. My name is David Lefevre. I'm one of the elders here at Oikos, and it is truly a privilege and an honor to be the instrument for God's message for you today. On this, the last Sunday of the year, right before New Year's Eve, the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, and I don't know about any of you, but I am ready for 2018 to be over and for 2019 to begin, for there to be a new year. But even as I say that, I, I, I stop, I think, and I wonder, what, what, is, what magic is there in this kind of arbitrary end of one loop around the sun and the beginning of another loop around the sun? It's rather arbitrary. Many different cultures have different New Years. The Chinese New Year is at a different point in time. Uh, the Jewish New Year is at a different point in time. It is truly arbitrary, but yet there's something to it. There seems to be anyway. And I think it's because God knows us, and He knows us well. And He knows that left to our own devices, we're going to forget. And we're going to forget the promise that He made, that He will make all things new. Let's take a listen. I suddenly realized that everything was new. I looked into the sky and the old heaven no longer existed. There was a new heaven. I looked around and the old earth was gone. There was a new earth, and it didn't have oceans. I looked up and I saw the holy city coming from God out of heaven. It was the new Jerusalem, and it was beautiful. It was like a bride all dressed up for her husband. Then I heard a voice. It said, Look, God is going to live with people. He'll be their God, and they'll be his people. He'll wipe away their tears of sorrow. He'll do away with death, grieving, sorrow, and pain. Everything will be different. Then God said to me, What you're seeing is true. Everything will be new. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. I give springs of living water to the thirsty. I'm a father of the redeemed. They are my children, and they have found my victory. But those who didn't believe are cowards and vile. They're full of murder, immorality, and lies. They worship devils and false gods. When all of this is done, I'll send them to the lake of fire. That is the second death. Then an angel came to me and said, Come, and I'll give you a closer look. He took my spirit to a high mountain, so I could see the holy city as it came out of heaven. The new Jerusalem was dressed in God's glory and shone like precious jewels. Its wall had 12 gates, three on each of the four sides. The gates had the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, and the foundations of the walls had the names of the twelve apostles. All of it was made of precious stones. The angel measured the city, and I found out that it was 1,500 miles in each direction, like a massive cube. The walls were made of jasper, and the city itself was pure gold. The gates were made of pearl. The main street was made of pure, transparent gold. There was no temple because God and the Lamb were the temple. 
Those in the city didn't need the sun or moon, because the glory of God was the light, and the Lamb was the lamp. The gates were always open, because it was always day there. All the nations were welcome to come at any time, but vile and unclean people were not allowed in. Only those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life were welcomed into the city. This is how God loved the world, writes the Apostle John. He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. That's the promise. And for a second, let's try to strip away the notions of what the afterlife looks like, these pop culture references to hanging out on clouds and plucking strings and on harps and wearing robes. And let's try to strip all that away and instead just look at the promise that we would have eternal life, immortality. And I don't know about you, but if we take all that away, what's left is the possible idea that we would live forever in these bodily forms. And the thought of forever existing in my present reality is kind of unsettling, actually. I mean, honestly. But as I said, God knows us and He knows us well. Left to our own devices, we're going to fill in those gaps. And He reminds us, twice He did it, once to the prophet Daniel, and once to John of Patmos. And he reminds us that this promise of eternity is beyond our comprehension. And this is what they perceived it was the best they could do to tell us what this looks like. And so that's what we have in this chapter of Revelation. All kinds of pop culture is written about this, the, the Left Behind series, all kinds of stuff, and those are fun. But this is what he tells us it is. This is eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 21, we get a glimpse of what that eternal life looks like. We're going to go through the, primary, the middle section of Revelation 21. And if you've got a smartphone Bible, switch it over to English Standard Version, if you would, please. If, you're, if you have a paper Bible, um, it should be up on the screens in, in ESV. And there's a reason I've chosen this translation. So we're going to start at chapter 10, or I'm sorry, at uh, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's a lot of numbers right there in that paragraph. A lot of numbers. And they're important. Very, very important. The number 12, we just heard represent or speaks to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, our Hebrew or Jewish ancestry, and the 12 apostles, our New Testament heritage. 
the number 12 has a lot of meaning. The number three represents God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Number three is God. Let's just take that as fact, okay? Number three is God. Number four is creation, okay? Three times four is 12. In other words, God times creation, when God intersects with his creation, 12 is his covenant family, his chosen people, his oikos. That's 12. Old Testament and New Testament, 12, God's people. As, he's just, as the, uh, John of Potmos, the, the author of Revelation, is describing what he sees as this eternal life, he's shown a city with 12 foundations, the apostles, 12 gates, the Old Testament fathers, three gates on each side, three and four sides times four. God and creation are one. Continuing on, it says, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod made of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height were equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also the angel's measurement. Okay, don't worry about what a stadia is, it's pretty big. Uh, and don't worry about what a cubit is necessarily. What's important are the numbers, 12,000. So it, John is, is trying to tell us what this eternity looks like, and it's a huge cube, apparently. An enormous cube, but it's more than that. So let's break apart 12,000 into its parts, okay? First, 1,000. 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10, that's 10 to the third power, okay? Uh, in Hebrew numerologic tradition, the number 10 represents a, an earthly completion of something. Um, it, it could actually be a different number, but, but, the, but if there are like 10 kings, for instance, what they're talking about is this, this necessary number of kings. It may be 10, it may be something else, but it's this necessary number of something on earth. When you multiply or when you multiply 10 times 10 times 10, 10 to the third power, we're adding God into this. And what that means is that a thousand is the quantitative fullness brought about by God. When I say quantitative fullness, what I mean is the, the thing that God needs, the millennium, um, the, you know, the thing that he has defined as this is what is necessary, whether it's time or people or a place, whatever it is, but, but this is what is necessary. The 12,000 is God's quantitative fullness times 12, which is his covenant people. In other words, the 12,000 represents the entirety of God's covenant family across all space and time. And the angel is being very specific in giving him these measurements so that John understands and writes down that this means we are returning to the Garden of Eden. It is a physical space, length, width, height. It is a physical existence. 
incomprehensible to us, the closest we can get is what I'm telling you now, that it is the completion of God's people. The walls are 144 cubits deep by human measurement. 144 is 12 times 12. And I'm departing a bit from the commentaries, and I'm going to give you what I saw in this. Repeated references to the 12, both Old Testament and New. And I believe what God is trying to represent here in this 144 is a reminder to the Jews of John's day and to us today that the Bible is not two parts it is one. It is one story of God. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, multiplied together, inextricably combined, 144. It is one story, one identity, one mission. God made a promise to his people and continues to make that promise, I will be with you. You will not get to experience the fullness of that promise today. The fullness of that promise is for another day. But I will be with you, and you are my children. The mission in this eternity is fulfilled. All that's left is identity. You are a child of the one true God. Revelation 21 continues, the wall was built of jasper where the city was pure, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, third agate, the fourth emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. If you've done much reading in scripture, if you follow the Moravian like we do, and you've gone through some of the Old Testament, you'll remember that in Exodus, God gives instructions for how the priest should be dressed. And he instructs them to make a breastplate of 12 stones, 12 different types. A row of three, four of them, three by four, God and his creation. And the priest is to wear this breastplate. It's in gold. It has 12 different stones on it. I'll save you the hours and hours of comparison between the two, trying to figure out which jewels match. They don't match, by the way. This list and the Old Testament list, I'll save you the trouble. They don't match. And there's a reason for it, I believe. God's promises to us and the representations and, and the things that he gives us now are not meant to be perfect but they will be. That's why they're different. But he, John of Potmos writes this down, and God shows this to him to remind him yet again, remember the promise of the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It is one story, one faith, one baptism, one family, one oikos. 
And in this place, this physical existence of eternity, the, the eternal life that we're promised, Revelation continues and says that the 12 gates and 12 were, were 12 pearls, and each gate made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God of the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In other words, in order to know how much time has passed, what do you need? You need a night and a day. You need a beginning, you need a marker. There's no time, right? That's one of the things that he's saying. Night also brings darkness and darkness fear. When do armies attack each other when they want to surprise the other side? At night. Night brings death. There is no night. There is no need for a temple because God is residing with his people as in the Garden of Eden. They are one. We have no need for anything. It's everything is provided for us. And the, the everything, the everything is Yahweh, our Father. That's it. That's what he's trying to describe. Pause for a moment and, and just kind of revel in that, in that promise, right? So we, we have no need of anything. I try, I mean, just try to imagine this, this city and dwelling with God, it's actually really hard to do. I mean, if you think of the, the, the best time of your life, right, the best possible moment and the joy that you felt, that is but a foretaste of what this is. So for me, just as I'm thinking now, it, it might be uh, the birth of one of my children. And, and actually, it, it plays on our little Apple TV every once in a while. There's a picture of me holding Alexia and, and I'm doing a little nose kiss with her. And I, I remember what I felt at that time and the joy that it brings. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. And if we stop and think about that for a minute, all the stuff that has happened this year, let's just, let's, let's just do one year, all right? The conflict with within our families, the conflict without our families, the, the economic turmoil, the uncertainty of what's going to happen, all that, all that stuff, if we stop and, and try to hold the two together, all of a sudden stuff starts not to be so bad if we remember this promise. And just, just pause and kind of think of that for a minute. Take a deep breath. Go ahead, take a deep breath. But it's temporary because this is not the kingdom of heaven. We're all going to stand up and walk out those doors. We're still going to have to pay our mortgages. We're still going to have to put food on the table. We're still going to have to slog it out here on earth. And reality starts to set in. Our present reality that is both the promise of what is to come but also what's right in front of us. But God knows us well, and he knows that we're not going to be sustained by this abstract promise. 
I mean, quite honestly, you know, listening to the reading, it's kind of hard to follow. I mean, that's all this imagery and the numbers and everything, it's actually very hard to follow. And he knows we won't be sustained by that. Maybe we should. Maybe we should have the faith that such a promise will sustain us, that all we need is John 3.16. But that's not the case. Because this is an imperfect world where imperfect people, sin has entered. And that a promise won't sustain us. God loves us so much. He knows that. And so he gives us tangible, perceptible things to remember. He gives us patterns and people. The Apostle Paul understood this. And through him, God connects the dots of this eternal promise and our present reality. In his letter to the Hebrews, he writes in chapter 11, faith is the confidence that we hope, that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, and what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to, serve his, to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about the things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and, re- and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith because he was a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation became, came from this one man who was as good as dead. A nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on this earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham 
who had received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if he died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called one of, uh, one of the sons of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the lands of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because his faith, uh, because his, he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as they were on dry ground. And when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came down. It was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more need I say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed by the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. Wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. Not one. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. He got it. He understood. We are given this promise as God's children. This is our identity. This is who we are. And the promise is the now but not yet. 
The promise exists right now. And he gives us little pieces of his kingdom. There are actually two kingdoms, by the way. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They are two different things. Sort of. The kingdom of heaven is what is described in Revelation and in Daniel. It's the eternal promise. that It is the, it is the final resting place, the physical existence where we dwell with God forever. That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God is the now. The kingdom of heaven is the not yet. Remember Jesus said... The kingdom of God is at hand, right here. Jesus was not being coy and saying, you know, God is not bound by time, and so the kingdom of God is near as in, you know, millennia from now. He was saying, it's right in front of your eyes. It's right in front of you. It was him. The kingdom of God broke through and was present, and he made another promise. He said, I'm going to send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he came as a windstorm, as fire, and he dwells with his people now. Whenever we have a baptism here, Pastor Aaron invites us to go to that baptismal font, to dip our fingers in, and to make a cross on our foreheads and our hearts. You might see the children do it even when we're not doing a baptism. And it's to remind us that in our baptism, we are given the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is breaking through every day. And he gives us these arbitrary times, this thing that we call a year, this new year, to remember he is present in our now and there is more in the not yet. And so he asks us at times like these, the end of a new year, the end of a year and the beginning of a new year, to remember. He's been here with us all along. Through the joblessness, through the conflict, through the desires of our heart that are not yet fulfilled, he's in it right now. And he asks us to remember. Anybody know when the Jewish New Year is? Not the date, but like how it's determined? It's Rosh Hashanah, very good. And it's the seventh, it's the first day of the seventh month in the Hebrew lunar year. Seven. Three plus four. God and his creation. So maybe it's not so arbitrary after all. Let us take a few minutes and just allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and remind us where God has been, that it might carry us through to the new year. That no matter what happens, no matter what battles we fight, the war is won. God is with us. Emmanuel. Please pray with me.
Lord God, thank you so much for loving us, for being present with us. You are the Emmanuel. There, the fullness of your promise cannot be realized, and yet you know that about us. You know that we need more. We shouldn't, but we do, and we make that confession. Our faith is not strong enough, but you are a God of grace and mercy. So you ask us to eat some bread and drink some wine because you are in it, and you remind us what you've done. For all that you have done for us, for every battle won, let us raise a song to bless your heart for all that you have done. Your grace will never be forgot. Your mercy is all my life. Will be my soul's forever song, my story and my light. For all that you have done for us for every battle won we'll raise a song to bless your heart for all that you have done from mountain top to valley low through laughter and through tears, surely the goodness of my God will follow all the years. For all that you have done for us, for every battle won, we'll raise a song to bless your heart for all that you have done. In unity we'll stand as one, as family will go, shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, into the great unknown. One more time. For 